Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, March 20th, and we're dipping into the mailbag. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Premium Analyst, Ben Ra. Ben, how's it going? Excellent. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back on the show. I think last time we did a show together, we were talking about China. Yeah. Today, we are answering some questions. We got some questions built up uh, sure. in the mailbag. Mailbag's getting a little bit full. And I love that because we are pre recording this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be on vacation when it airs. So there might be some numbers that are a little different, especially as we're talking about market cap. But the mailbag episodes are great because we get to talk about concepts. And really, concepts don't ever get stale. Yep. So, uh, we have a couple questions we're going to be hitting on this episode. And of course, listeners, if you want us to hit anything, just write into the show, industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. We love getting ideas. So, our first question comes from Cam. Cam asks, What do you see as the eventual size of the e commerce companies and where will they be in five years? And then in parentheses, Amazon, Mercado Libre, and JD. So, Three companies, three very different companies. Uh, when you look at that list, yeah, I mean, uh, Amazon really stands apart, and it really should be treated, I think, uh, differently from the other. Amazon, first of all, is a trillion-dollar company. Uh, Mercado Libre is way smaller; it's like thirty, forty billion, and then JD is probably around twice as big as that. So you're talking about a different scale here, a trillion-dollar company. So if you if you if you're expecting, say, like a fifteen percent return. On Amazon over the next say four years, it's going to double. So it's going to be a two trillion dollar company in around four years if the stock returns fifteen percent a year, which is a pretty good return. But it's also two trillion dollars, and it's probably going to be ten percent of U.S. GDP. <laughs> now, is that impossible? You know, anything is possible, and maybe I'm just not being um, you know enough of a visionary. And the trillion is probably the you know what a billion was a hundred years ago, and I would imagine that back in 1900, the first billion-dollar company, and I actually looked this up. Oh, uh, it was U.S. Steel around the 1900s, and I'm sure that when that happened, it was a shock for a lot of people. But at the same time, the GDP at the time was around 600 billion. So uh, the the market cap of U.S. Steel at the time. Uh, $1 billion right around was like 0.16% of GDP. Whereas you're talking about $2 trillion versus about $21 uh, trillion of GDP. So it's closer to 10% of GDP. It just shows you how much bigger these companies are as a percentage of our total economy. I'm not saying it's impossible. But uh, I tend to take the under on that. Yeah, that's that's a hefty valuation. Yeah. And you know, I mean, in fairness, we saw Apple hit one trillion, and you know, depending on when you looked over the last couple of months, one point four trillion yeah. was was around when they were trading at, and so sure. they they hit that forty percent upside fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it is tempting to think that winners will keep on winning, and I don't think that anyone could really go wrong by owning shares of Amazon. Yeah. But the bigger a company gets, the more you have to adjust your growth expectations. Sure, absolutely, and. The thing.
thing about Amazon and also the other successful e-commerce companies like Mercado Libre, for example, or Alibaba, is that they're not just e-commerce companies. E-commerce is, in a way, you know, it's just one part of their business. And I actually think that being a first-party retailer where you're, you know, buying stuff that you're selling online is not a very good business. Um, you know, Amazon, of course, there's AWS, the cloud business is just a huge part of that valuation. It could be like 50% of that valuation. Uh, Mercado Libre, of course, you have payments, uh, Alibaba, uh, you have, you know, the, the, it's really like a search, search engine for, for retail. You have Alipay, which is the other, you know, payments platform. So you have other businesses that they've been able to leverage. And that's really the question that you have to ask when you're thinking about a JD.com or any other e-commerce company is, what else besides just selling stuff can they actually do? And for Amazon, I mean, that really starts to enter into the will regulators come at them kind yes. of angle. And, yeah. you know, I'm, we've talked about this on the show before. I would not be shocked if in the next five years, maybe next 10 years, um, Amazon looks a little different as a company sure. than it currently does. And you mentioned that AWS segment. A lot yeah. of people think that could be spun out at some point. Absolutely. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that, and a, lot, a couple of our analysts actually believe that, too. Um, it's definitely possible. I think a lot depends on the next presidential election. Um, who knows you know, where that will take us. But it's definitely not impossible for uh, that segment to be spun off. That's a possibility that it's really in the future. So to play devil's advocate a little bit, you know, you were you were giving the difficulty of getting from a one trillion to a two trillion dollar company, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know that it'll happen overnight by any stretch. But yeah. I think what's so tempting about it for investors is, well, you look at e-commerce, and that's really what Amazon's known for, mm-hmm. and the penetration rate is still so low yeah. in the United States. I think, depending on the estimates you look at, it's somewhere in the low double digits of overall retail, mm-hmm. and I think Amazon's take on that is like 35%, roughly. Yeah. Sure. And so, you say, wow, like if more and more of those purchases start coming online, you know, there's, there's going to be some pretty big tailwinds pushing this company forward. They're also seeing that market share of online sales dip a little bit over time. They used to be fifty percent. Now we're seeing them down to mid thirties. Yeah, and you know that percentage of online shares, uh, online sales will probably, I would say, it's going to go down in the future. Um, But yeah, as you said, you know, online sales generally, I think it's going to increase. So yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of those things where it's very difficult to predict. Uh, A trillion dollars for me is is. A huge number still. Uh, it's difficult for me to imagine uh, two trillion, uh, but you know it's probably going to happen. So to look at some of these smaller companies, though, I think the growth story is still so intact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the Mercado Libre is a company that I've talked about plenty on the show, and I mentioned the penetration rates for e-commerce before. You go down to South America and look; I think it's like maybe three or four percent. Sure. So they're they're still coming online with so many of their purchases, so many of their payment options. Yeah. I, I have to think there's a little bit more green space ahead of that company. Yeah, absolutely. And these are all economies. The China is, is in a way similar. Uh, in the U.S., you have this built-out uh, retail infrastructure. You have companies like Walmart. You have companies like Costco. That have just been, you know, powerhouses for a long time. So Amazon really has to compete against, you know, these kind of tough competitors. They're not just going to lay down for Amazon, no matter how great Amazon is. But it's not the same in South America. It's not the same in China. There, it's much more, say, it's much more virgin territory. So they have, with their powerful online, digital, cloud-driven business models, they can do a lot more damage than Amazon can do. 
here in the U.S. Of course, there are smaller economies. Well, China is you know, big, <laughs> but uh, South America is smaller. But um, they could definitely take up a huge share of that economy. And there's kind of a different element too with consumer behavior and just where people are in terms of their financial lives. You know, I mean, Amazon is for the most part an e-commerce platform for a lot of people, but if you go down South America, you're seeing people use uh, Mercado Pago mm-hmm. as as a payments infrastructure, and yeah. that's something that Amazon doesn't quite have. No. Um, and that's that's a wonderful kicker for digital payments for them. It started out as something that they just wanted to, you know, be able to process things on their own platform. Turns out they basically created the PayPal and Square sure. uh, of South America. Yep. Um, so there are different drivers there, but at the same time, you know, they don't have the cloud business that's putting up crazy margins mm-hmm. that Amazon gets to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, e-commerce, Amazon, if you look at how they've performed internationally, they've done all right in places like Europe. But, I mean, if you go to South Korea, if you go to China, of course, is is pretty much blocked for them. But, I mean, it, they really don't have that much market share. It's a little different with the cloud business. With, with the cloud business, they've actually been able to get a very high market share internationally, whether it's in South America or in Asia. So, there is something about that business where they're just able to uh, dominate internationally and not just in one area, uh, which is sort of the case with e-commerce, where it's it's very regional. Yeah. Um, I think what Cam probably wants out of this conversation is something that we aren't going to be able to give Cam. I'm assuming he, but sorry if that's the case, she. Um, and that's, you know, what, what do these businesses look like in terms of market cap in five years? I think we would be loath to throw out a number, yeah. but what I hear throughout this conversation is, the huge tailwinds that a lot of these companies have, and the fact that they are still pretty much in their early innings. Certainly, the trends, and also these companies within the trends. Yeah, absolutely. And if you just you know diversify with these, you really can't go wrong. I think uh, buying these companies as long as you hold them over the long term, and as long as you diversify. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to stop buying stuff online and instead go brick and mortar. I don't think things are going to go off the cloud. I think once we've realized that the cloud's pretty great, we're going to stay there. Absolutely. (laughs) All right, we have a second question. We're going to hit that in a second. Uh, Listeners, I just want to give you all a quick reminder. If you want some stock ideas and recommendations, you can go over to our Stock Advisor service, get stock recommendations from David and Tom Gardner every single month. You get the best buys now and more. You can get all that over at if.fool.com. And we have a special 50% off discount for our listeners over at if.fool.com. All right, Ben, our second question comes from Luis. Luis writes in, Hey, Fools, one of my favorite podcasts around. Love getting a little listener love. (laughs) Truly appreciate what you do. I'm a Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers member, and I'm writing in with a question. I have stocks and ETFs scattered through multiple accounts. I have Robinhood, Stash, Acorns, Fidelity for my 401k, and a Roth IRA with TD Ameritrade, as well as a small options account with TD Ameritrade. Do you guys think I have too many accounts, or should I try to narrow it down? Luis goes into some of the logic why he has all these different accounts, mostly due to features. And then Luis also writes, right now, I'm trying to do some work on position sizing. I feel like I'm overweight on some stocks. It's a little difficult to manage, particularly because I have too many accounts. Uh, any suggestions on position sizing and the right number of accounts would be greatly appreciated. Again, thanks for your time. So, there's a lot going on there with, yeah. with Luis's finances. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to the accounts, that's really up to what Luis is comfortable with. I mean, I have three accounts and I'm comfortable with that. You know, I hate memorizing passwords and writing them down somewhere. And I, I don't think I can handle more than three. You know, I have one account for my 401k, one for my 
uh, one for my uh, Roth IRA, and then another one for international trading. And that's enough for me. Uh, so it's really you know what you're comfortable with, um, and uh, I think you know simplicity is important for me. I don't know about you. I mean, I don't know how many you can handle, but for me, three is a lot. So I'm I'm very similar. I have uh, the 401k provider we have through the Fool. Yeah. I have assets with Vanguard, and then I have my brokerage account with Merrill. Yeah. And uh, it's it's nice and simple. I know where everything is. the The concern I have, I, I can understand how someone winds up in a couple different brokerages. You know, mm-hmm. someone has a great robo advisor service. Uh, someone else has that roundup that automatically puts money into an investing account for you. Someone else has commission free trades. Someone else gives you great options. And so, you know, very quickly it can multiply if you're trying to do all these different things and sure. you're just starting out. You're trying to do it yep. cheaply. What I would caution though is if you have a lot of accounts, when it comes tax time. You might miss something. Yeah. And so, one of the benefits of only having a couple accounts is that it's a little bit easier to make sure that you're checking all the boxes when you know you're you're leading up to April fifteenth, and you need to make sure you're paying the amount the amount you're supposed to be paying. I, I agree with that. I mean, uh, simplicity is very important for me. So, I as I said, I can't handle more than three. But the more important question, of course, is the one on position sizing, mm-hmm. and um, allocation is first of all, it's extremely important. I mean, we always talk about. Uh, stock picking. And our company is really focused on stock picking. But when it comes to investment performance over the long term, it's really two elements. It's stock picking plus allocation. And the second part really doesn't get as much play as the first part, but it's just as important. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's not as much fun to be like, this is how much you should buy, but only yeah. a little bit. right? Sure. It's, it's much more fun to tell a great story about a stock. Yeah, and it, it's, it is super important. I mean, just think about it. If you have a stock that returns say 100% over the next year. If you just invest 1% of your portfolio in that stock, that's just a 1% return. right? If you invest 50%, it's a 50% return. So, it can have a huge effect on your returns over the long term. And unlike stock picking, uh, there isn't a lot of like academic uh, research um, on allocation. There's some. But there's not as much. I mean, with stock picking, you have you know discounted cash flow, you have economic value. All of these, all of these academic studies that have been done over many many years, to support our thinking. With allocation, um, it's much more an art than a science. I mean, there is the the Kelly formula, which we actually kind of use uh, in Global Partners. We kind of use it a little bit as a thinking aid. Um, it's not the ultimate authority, but it is it is quite useful as long as you sort of fashion it um, for stocks and you kind of have to jiggle with the numbers. But it can help. And so if you want to Google that, you can take a look at it. I don't know the formula offhand. <laughs> could could you give a quick like sixty seconds on vaguely how you'd use it? We don't have to get into the specifics of the formula. Yeah. So the formula was developed for uh, gambling games. So it was developed for uh, something like blackjack. So, based on what you think the downside is, the probability of that downside, based on what you think the upside is and the probability of that upside, it'll give you an allocation. Um, say 20%, say 30%. Um, it, te- it tells you, it tells, for example, a blackjack player to uh, bet, say, 50% of your bankroll on a certain hand. Uh, based on based on all of those um, variables, now the thing about the Kelly formula is that it gives you super high numbers. A lot of times it'll give you like 140 percent. So you should take on leverage to buy this stock. Is that something you should do? Probably not. Yeah. Um, so 
what you one way you can do it is you know you can apply it to your portfolio based on what you think the downside is the probability of the downside etc and then sort of average it out so if it comes out if you have say three stocks and each of the numbers come out as 100% then you could put in 33.333% a third of your portfolio into each stocks so you could sort of like average it um, and allocate it that way. And I found in my personal uh, experience that if you do that to your portfolio, it actually turns out to be pretty close to what you think about your, your stocks in the first place. So it's not the ultimate authority, but it's something that could help your thinking and sort of clarify where you are, what you actually think about these stocks. Yeah, so that requires going through the exercise of trying to understand upside and mm-hmm. also trying to understand downside, which can be very helpful, Yes, probably a little bit more involved than some folks might want to get, especially yes. folks that are just starting out. Absolutely. And um, generally speaking, um, I think you, know, you should definitely start with the downside. So, know what you're risking with the stock. And you know, if you have, say, a position, and this is something, sort of a thought exercise that I've presented to a lot of people, if you have a stock that could say, go up by 10 times, and the probability of going up by 10 times is 90%. How much should you allocate to it if the downside is 100%? If, you, if when you lose that 10%, you're going to lose everything, how much should you allocate? And there's no like scientific answer for that. It really depends on what your situation is. If you're a student, if you just got out of, out of college and you have like $5,000 in your bank account, then it's not wrong to put in all of that money on that bet and just you know uh, make it you know fifty thousand ninety percent chance. That's a pretty good bet. Um, if you're sixty years old and you're facing down retirement, then um, it's a very different story. So you have to be you have to know exactly what you're comfortable losing uh, when you uh, buy any kind of financial asset. So our general rule is to diversify. Um, but I think over the long term, what happens, say you buy 20 stocks, uh, what happens to that portfolio over the long term is that it gets much more heavily allocated toward one, two stocks, uh, which are the big winners. And then the other you know, 18 might be losers. And you could still do very well if that's the case, as long as those winners will make up for the losers. Ben, it's like you were looking over my shoulder when I was checking my <laughs> brokerage account earlier. I own about 20 stocks yeah. uh, in my brokerage account. And um, I looked at the weightings just to kind of have a good sense before we came in and talked about this. And I have three stocks that are slightly more than 10% of my portfolio each. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is there are three stocks that have absolutely crushed it. It's yep. uh, it's Axon, it's Mercado Libre, and it's Apple. It's yep. three companies that have done very well. And I'm comfortable with that just about 10% allocation of those companies because mm-hmm. they've done really well, they've earned it, and I like their prospects going forward. Yep. Um, now I have 20 stocks. That means that the other 17 are splitting up 70%. Yep. And there are some that have a very small allocation because they haven't earned that allocation. Sure. Um, the the thing I come back to when you know I, I look at it and say wow you know ten percent tied to one thing is well my brokerage account is just one piece of the financial puzzle mm-hmm. so I mentioned before the four hundred and one k I mentioned you know the IRAs with Vanguard yep. those also play a factor and yep. so make sure you're kind of taking your entire financial life into uh, the picture when you're starting to think about these allocations because sure. if you have ten percent 
for one stock in a brokerage account, it's not a huge deal if that brokerage account is only 25% of your overall net worth. Right. I mean, there's your house, if you own a house, there's your paycheck. So, all of those things you should definitely take into account. But, um, I mean, what you said is, is very important there. And it's not just, allocation is not just about how much of a stock I should buy. It's also a question of when the stock goes up, what should I do? If I have a 10%, 20% allocation in my portfolio, then should I sell it? Should I shave off a little bit of this position because it's too big? Or should I just let it ride? And uh, hopefully, when you get to that position of having a large allocation, um, you know more, you're more confident in the future of that stock. And that's really the test is at that point in time, three, four, five years later, when your stock has gone up and you have this big winner, do you know more about the future of this stock? Are you more confident in the future of this stock than you were three, four, five years ago? And hopefully that, that answer is yes. And if that answer is yes, then you, know, it, you really should let it ride in, in most instances. One of the simplest tests I've heard for this is, if it's keeping you up at night, it's probably too big. Yes. And so, you know, if if that's the case, if you're really worried because you have one stock that has grown to the point where it's 25% of your portfolio mm-hmm. and that's freaking you out a little bit, it's yep. okay to trim that position down. Absolutely. I think with with position sizing and also with the earlier part of this question about what's the right number of accounts, just make sure you're not doing anything that creates a taxable event that you're not ready for. Right. And so, you know, if you are looking to consolidate down into one account or, you know, a couple of accounts, just don't don't sell just to do that. Mm-hmm. Make sure you're understanding all the tax implications for the stuff that you're doing. And similarly, sell because the thesis is changing for you or because it's a little bit more than you want and you have something else you want to buy. Don't just sell blankly because you're yes. going to probably pay some taxes on that. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I mean, I think we covered that question. Yeah. <laughs> I think we covered it really well. Ben, uh, so awesome to have you on. Uh, it's always always great to chat with you. Absolutely. You always take Thank things you. in a place that I'm not quite expecting you to, and, uh, and I always love the discussion. Uh, listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, like I said before, reach out industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. It's Friday, so we're going to be playing things out with checks and balances by full-time Fool Burke and Grafia. For Ben Ra, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! I've got a million dollars, it's hypothetical. Large amount in my bank account, it's parenthetical The money I'm made of is theoretical So in theory I've got it good My fat wallet is on a diet My balance sheet is lopsided My income statement is keeping silent But let's keep one thing understood I need checks I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money or do you do it for love? My cold hard cash is soft and tropical My deep pockets are merely topical I hit the big time, it was microscopical But don't you get it, I am no fool I own a bank I call him Piggy, brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy, cracked him open, what a pity, his inner life was pitiful, 